Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. Today on the show, I welcome Dr. Will Cole. Will was named one of the top 50 functional medicine doctors in the country. He is the author of the New York Times bestsellers, Intuitive Fasting and Ketotarian, and has a new book coming out in 2023 that I cannot wait to devour, within my eating window, of course, called Gut Feelings. Now, Will started one of the first functional medicine telehealth centers in the world based out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and he is also the host of the popular The Art of Being Well podcast. In this episode, Will and I discuss how to tap into the foundational intelligence of our bodies to create metabolic flexibility, the ability of the body to switch seamlessly from burning carbs and burning fat for energy. We discuss ways to keep insulin and glucose levels low while also getting quality phytonutrients by leveraging a ketotarian diet. That's right. Keto doesn't have to mean incessant bacon consumption. You can be plant-focused and still burn ketones. We discuss the spiritual dimensions of fasting, of being able to sit with hunger, and how fasting can help us become more comfortable with discomfort more generally. And we get into how I personally used intermittent fasting as one of the tools to reverse my own insulin resistance. Now, if you're interested in functional and integrative medicine-based programs with doctors like Mary Pardee, Zach Bush, Mark Hyman, and Roger Schwelt on topics such as gut health, sleep, immunity, hormone balancing, Ayurveda, and nutrition, well, you can sign up for 14 days of free all-access to Commune's entire course library. That includes more than 100 courses on health, personal growth, and social impact. Just go to one commune.com slash trial. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcatcher. So without further delay, I present to you, Dr. Will Cole. goodness this is long overdue yeah it, it almost defies the odds that we've never met i know but here we are we official it's official in front of everybody yeah <laughs> right we have so uh many common colleagues friends yes, acquaintances mm -hmm. um and now here we are in three-dimensional it's a f yeah space it's, it's four-dimensional space time <laughs> i should say we're in the metaverse right yeah. now <laughs> it's fun walking around um the biohacking conference so just to place us uh, in space. Right. We are in Los Angeles and we're at this kooky biohacking conference. It's the craziest. And uh, yeah, I'm walking around hacking my biology <laughs> every second. <laughs> me too. And it's, it's fun. It's a little strange for me, honestly, because I'm super, I'm into the tech and I'm into the science, but like until about a year and a half ago, my only wearable was like mala beads. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the same way. I, I, I like it. I implement some of it with patients, but I am on the one end of the spectrum of the biohacker. I don't like people will you'll see people walking around here with wires out of their bodies and like tech everywhere. It's too much for me. I'm definitely more conservative with that. I'd much rather have mala beads. Yeah. Well, they actually do function 
for me as a yeah. wearable because it keeps me yeah, meditating. Grounded. Yeah. yeah. I use each little mala as a note as I breathe, and I, yeah. that's the way I kind of keep track. And if I can make it all the way around 108, yes. whoa, it's a good day. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> well, it's not that like so much of what this event really covers is the ancient and the modern and the mm. convergence of the two. It's interesting you bring that up, totally off script, not what I was planning to talk to you about, but so often we repackage things that are old and true true, to address these problems that are new. Yes. And in a way, our culture is outpacing our evolution. Mm -hmm. So over millennia or hundreds of millennia, mm -hmm. we've developed these adaptive mechanisms Mm -hmm. in our physiology and in the last like 120 years we've like lapped them with like yeah. processed foods or 24-hour on-demand entertainment mm -hmm. or you know light you know whatever fill in the blank yeah and in a way it's almost like getting ourselves back into alignment with how we were how we've evolved yeah um, and so this, I always laugh when I see things like new yoga, yeah, new, new meditation, yeah, grounding, new forest <laughs> <Yeah>. bathing. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, that's a lot of what I do in functional medicine. It's looking at that evolutionary mismatch. Mm. Our genetics hasn't changed in 10,000 plus years, mostly. But yeah, our world has changed so much. And yeah, you're right. <laughs> it is. Uh, but if that's their in. If that's their in in the new packaged way and getting them into the the ancestral primal, I'm fine with it. And yeah. then they'll learn later on, oh, well, this is not a new thing. This has been around for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm not a Luddite. I've got some stuff happening. I'm wearing some stuff. I got a CGM in my tricep here and a aura ring. And, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm hip to guinea pig myself. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, to the degree that it provides... Um, more insight into my own physiology mm -hmm. such that I can align it with the foundational wisdom of yes. nature and yes. evolution. I feel like the way that I, I approach and I implement both of those things with patients, sleep optimization and the CGM for blood sugar regulation and metabolic flexibility is using those, <clears throat> teaching patients to use those as a mindfulness tool, mm -hmm. to not become obsessed about it, don't become orthorexic about <laughs> it, don't use it as a source of shame or dread if you're not perfect, but it's just like, checking in with your body and you can be your own N of one experiment in a way that's balanced and measured and it's helpful. And then they can become intuitive and they don't always have to have those tech things that they don't want to. They may want to, but mm -hmm. they may want to drop them and just keep it simple, but they've learned mindfully what works for their body and what doesn't. Yeah. You, it's so funny you dropped a word orthorexia in there. I yeah. think that would be the diagnosis most applicable to the crowd here. It would be. Potentially. It is, would be. And, yeah. and my talk today, I actually talked about it quite a bit because I do think it's a problem within the biohacking community with the best of intentions. But it's like, right. yeah, it becomes quite obsessive about things that are, they're stressing about things that are healthy and it's kind of counterproductive. Well, yeah. Well, particularly about sleep, for example, yeah, where you can become so neurotically attached to your aura ring <laughs> yeah. and the readings and your metrics from uh, the print, you know, that come out on your app mm -hmm. that it actually can inhibit getting sleep. proper sleep. <laughs> yeah. And then you're stressing about not sleeping and looking at the data and not scoring as well as you want to. Yeah. yeah it takes a certain level. There is a certain personality. I think that people that they have the vessel to contain that information and it doesn't rattle them. But mm. many people, they have to check themselves as to why they are doing what they're doing. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, your work has 
a lot of personal relevance to me. And um, so grant me just like a minute to explain why. Sure. So I was convinced that I was healthy. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I was exercising uh, pretty regularly. I ran a company called Wanderlust, which was a yoga company. Mm-hmm. But of course, I was burning hours mm-hmm. and I was always exhausted. I had a good amount of brain fog unless I was highly caffeinated. Mm-hmm. I was carrying um, probably, you know, 10 or 15 pounds around kind of my viscera in, or in, in visceral fat, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I was convinced that I was eating a healthy diet. Mm-hmm. And then I put a CGM on, a continuous glucose monitor, mm-hmm. like we were referring to. Yeah. And this is a wearable for those of you who aren't familiar with it. Um, it's a little disc that you can apply into your tricep, and it connects to an app, and you can essentially check your blood glucose levels, not moment to moment, but you know, pretty much. Phase by phase of phase the day. Phase by phase. <laughs> and lo and behold... I was pre-diabetic. Wow. And this isn't that long ago. Okay. I was reading my fasting glucose levels were 110 milligrams per deciliter. So not like awful, but certainly in that pre-diabetic range. Mm-hmm. But what was more startling is that my postprandial readings, I would get these huge spikes like 180, 190, 200. Yeah. Um, now, of course, this doesn't put me outside of the norm, although what we consider normal, we might deem as patently abnormal. Right, yeah. <laughs> and we can talk about that. But I was like, whoa, I, I need to get my shit together. Mm-hmm. And so I needed to adopt some form of low glycemic diet, but... I wasn't like a bacon on everything kind of guy, mm-hmm. but that's kind of what I knew about keto. Right. So as I do with many things in life, I walked backwards into this sort of cobbled together plant-based ketogenic diet, or no, I should say plant-focused yeah. ketogenic diet. And, um, and I combined that with an intermittent fasting protocol and then subsequently with cold hydrotherapy and other adverse memetics, and maybe we can poke at that. Mm-hmm. But lo and behold, then I discovered your work, and I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> There's someone that already codified this, uh-huh. and I was essentially a ketotarian. Now, um, your work has helped me to refine the edges of what that means, but perhaps you could um, illuminate people on what is a ketotarian, what inspired you to write that book, and how does that delineate between kind of more traditional keto? Sure. Thank you. Um, And all of the books that I've written, they're born first and foremost out of my clinical experience. So that's what the book came about Mm. because I run a telehealth clinic. I started one of the first functional medicine telehealth centers over a decade, 12 years at this point. So 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., I'm in my telehealth clinic. I'm yeah. in my room. I'm looking at a screen. I'm helping somebody across the world, getting labs to them wherever they're at and looking at biomarkers labs, CGMs, but also bigger blood labs and 
other biomarkers. And Ketotarian was born out of seeing the conversation around keto. You know, it, the book came out in 2018. So think about that. I and mean, like the keto zeitgeist that was going on there. Right. <laughs> it was everything. Right. So I saw the keto community really ask a lot of questions to me of like, what, what should I do? The pitfalls of keto and all that stuff. So I really wanted a conversation for the keto community. And I wanted a conversation for a plant-based community because I was a vegan for 10 years. And then the sort of larger spectrum of just people that wanted to eat cleaner and do it in a way that that loved them back and they felt good doing it because, you know, and that's where ketotarian came from. It's a plant forward, like you said, a plant centric, a plant, mostly plant based is what the cover says, mostly, mostly plant based ketogenic. So it's basically there's mostly vegan keto, but vegetarian keto and then pescatarian keto, mm-hmm. what I call vegetarian in the book. Yeah. So fatty fish, wild cut fish, yeah. sardines, anchovy salmon, that, that type of thing. The smash stuff. Yeah, exactly. So it's just a cleaner, in my opinion, a cleaner way to go keto, but it's not strict either. It's it's a cyclical keto. I don't think that most people always need to be in ketosis. It's a great tool for somebody that is pre-diabetic or has metabolic syndrome or has brain fog or fatigue, has an inflammatory problem. Okay, ketosis is a wonderful tool to, I mean, what did Paracelsus call? The Paracelsus was one of the the founders of medicine, and he was known as the Martin Luther of medicine, he called fasting the physician within. And the ketogenic guy is a Mm. fasting mimicking way of eating. So I see it as a therapeutic tool to tap into this inner doctor to heal, to repair, to gain metabolic flexibility, to lower inflammation levels, to to support gut microbiome balance. But then long-term from a sustainability or just an enjoyable, like flexible side of things, Increase clean carbs. There's no nothing wrong with that. So it is. Uh, it's a tool within the toolbox, and that's what I wanted to get across with that book. Once people actually understand a lot of the terminology, mm-hmm. and then they can understand the mechanisms, mm-hmm. and then once you understand the mechanisms of your vehicle, yeah. it becomes so much easier to adopt the protocols. Because <laughs> I kind of had a vague sense of a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. and then I was like, oh, what is happening w- within my physiology? Oh, like, oh yeah, your pancreas is secreting insulin sometimes, but then there's a counterpart to that that's called mm-hmm. glucagon, and that's you know sending another you know, signal to your liver to, you know, do this or that. So once you, I think, start to understand some of this terminology and some of the mechanism, it's really helpful. So when you said, for example, metabolic flexibility, what do you mean by that? So most people, I mean, it's really beautiful that you started off with talking about the ancestral genetic epigenetic mismatch, because that's really applicable here, Mm. is that because our genetics haven't changed really at all, but that the world, the foods we're eating and the foods we're not eating, stress levels, toxins, like environmental toxins, et cetera, um, trauma is at converging and triggering these genetic predispositions that have been there for 10,000 years, that are being awoken like never before in human history because of this evolutionary mismatch. So metabolic inflexibility is upwards, it's the majority of people, depending on how you look at it and how you define it, but it's it's the insulin resistance spectrum that we're seeing. It's it's 
on one end, it's pre it's full on type two diabetes. It's it's they're diagnosed with type two diabetes, and a little bit before that, it's pre diabetes and it's metabolic syndrome. Then it's the fatigue, hangriness, cravings, trouble losing weight, etc. That's the insulin resistant inflammation spectrum. Mm. So metabolic inflexibility or metabolic rigidity is the blood sugar being very imbalanced, dysregulated. So CGMs can be one way for us to look at that throughout the day. And like you said, those that postprandial po- after you eat, eat, what's your blood sugar regulation there? What's your regular? What's your blood sugar? levels throughout the day. Um, and we can also test some bigger biomarkers like A1C, glucose, triglycerides, uh, and looking at the lipid panel as well, HDL. So this is the majority of people. It can be quantified on labs. It's going to sh- also show up as the things I mentioned, trouble losing weight, cravings, moodiness, trouble falling asleep, staying asleep, these type of things. So fasting and the ketogenic diet are ways to reverse that metabolic inflexibility. So the way that I, and, and the, the analogy that I use in the books is like a, a proverbial yoga class for your metabolism. Mm. I think you also <clears throat> compared it to a Prius. Yes, right? thank <laughs> Which you. I thought yes. was really thank good. Because, yeah. uh, well, I am a proud Prius owner. Um, I, I was for many times until, <clears throat> for many years, until a squirrel ate my wires on my mm. Prius. Now I have a RAV4 hybrid, which oh. I still like. Yeah, very much. Um, squirrel resistant, I assume. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> My Prius was not squirrel resistant at all. Yeah, well, I have a Prius, and it can cycle between yeah. um, running on electricity, and mm-hmm. it can run on unleaded fuel when mm-hmm. it needs to. Yes. And I suppose there is a metaphor there to be made where you could run on glucose, or you could run on free fatty acids or ketones. Yeah. And it's that flexibility to run on either when you need to. Exactly. Which is uh, optimal. Exactly. Um, where I find where I am now, you know, uh, kind of a year and a half into really like upgrading my vehicle here, mm-hmm. is that I don't have to be orthorexic. I don't have to be neurotic about, um, you know, hitting my fasting window mm-hmm. every day mm-hmm. or, um, or, you know, whatever, if I'm at a birthday party and I can cheat around the edges every once in a while because I've started to unwind the progressive march of insulin resistance. Mm-hmm. And now I find, you know, boy, like my metabolism is like yeah. jamming. Yeah. Um, I agree with that fully. I, metabolic flexibility is foundational for intuitive eating, mindful eating, because mm-hmm. you can you have proper hormonal signaling, you have proper neurotransmitter signaling, you have proper blood sugar control. So you can have more awareness and agency on what your body loves and what your body doesn't love. When you're in the throes of metabolic inflexibility, that blood sugar roller coaster, which most people find them on themselves on in various varying degrees, there's a lot of disillusionment because they feel they don't know what's working for them and what's not. And they're just bound by these insatiable cravings and hangriness. Yeah. You know, keto is, is typically characterized by a um, macronutrient ratio. Mm-hmm. And maybe you could talk about what that is. Yeah. Um, and without pulling back the curtain there too much, you know, carbs have been largely villainized within the world of keto. Yeah. 
but we also don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Yeah. So right. Pull, pull on that for a second. Yeah, for sure. So that's definitely something that in two of my three books that are out now, Ketotarian and Intuitive Fasting, it's really those are conversations around this topic yeah. of macronutrients, fasting, metabolic flexibility, how do we use these tools to improve our metabolism and our brain and our immune system, basically. So um, the ketogenic diet is defined by a as a higher fat, moderate protein, lower carbohydrate diet. That is what is fasting mimicking, if you look at the research of that. If you go too high protein, technically speaking, you're gonna impact something called mTOR, right. which is the mammalian or mechanistic target of rapamycin. It's a pathway that's pro-accelerated growth, basically. So a lot of the longevity benefits that researchers are looking at as far as the ketogenic diet is involves mTOR being lower cyclically, not always, um, to get some of the, the longevity, autophagy, cellular recycling, anti-accelerated aging pathways. So there's a lot of ways to, to do the ketogenic diet. And that what we would call the dirty keto is just anything, you know, anything <laughs> as long as it's keto. It's lots of bacon and butter and processed junk, a lot of artificial sweeteners, right? Because they're low carb and keto. And look, can you see benefits from that? Yeah, because you're off a lot of garbage. You're off of a lot of mm. junk, refined, processed sugar. You're going to see relative improvements there. But there's this keto honeymoon that a lot of people find themselves. It's not sustainable. It has some long-term impacts of just not eating nutrient-dense, clean foods and lacking plant fibers. So one of the potential pitfalls of the conventional ketogenic diet is becoming orthorexic and neurotic about plant foods because fiber, it's by its very definition, a type of carb. Right. So then they become very fearful of oh my gosh, anything that could potentially lower my, my ketones, it's bad. And the name of the game is always higher ketones, more in ketosis, but it's a lot more nuanced than that. And your fibers should not be villainized. And whole food in the context of what we're talking about, like fruits and vegetables should not be feared. Uh, and it's very destructive, I think, for the average person that's doing the ketogenic diet that way. Mm -hmm. So what I really wanted to educate people in both intuitive fasting and ketotarian and my patients, first and foremost, is that you can have these foods and fiber is actually really good for blood sugar regulation. It's great for satiety. It's good for your microbiome, which is great for your metabolism. So yeah, it is uh, not all carbs, quote unquote, are behaving. They don't behave the same in your body. Yeah. Like Skittles and black beans are both <laughs> yeah. carbs. Yes, but right. Very different in terms of their knock-on impacts. Exactly. Right? One has fiber that's going to balance everything, and one does not. Right. They should make a fiber-rich Skittles. Maybe that'll be. <laughs> Just kidding. I think I was reading some data that um, that said Skittles is the number one uh, blood spiker, oh, or right. blood sugar spiker yes, uh, yes. out there, which I'm, I'm, is not surprising, really. No, no. So let's talk a little bit more about fiber. And you can feel free to get pretty geeky if you want. Okay. Um, because this was a big part of my journey to repair my gut. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about fiber and its relationship to our good gut bugs. Sure. Yeah. So our microbiome, I'm sure that most of your listeners know that, but we were, depending on the study that you look at, it, we're have about 100 trillion bacteria in our gut and about 10 trillion human cells. So 
we're all about 10 times more bacteria than human. And it's just the way that we are. Don't take it personally, people. <laughs> it's, we're all back, sort of sophisticated hosts for the microbiome, this gut garden, this microbiome metropolis. It is the foundation of our health. It's uh, 75% of the immune system. The microbiome is needed for converting the thyroid hormone. 20% of the thyroid hormone is converted in the gut. It is a major role. It's 95% of serotonin, 50% of dopamine is all made in the gut. And this is why Hippocrates said all disease begins in the gut, like everybody knows, right? He didn't have randomized control trials. He just <laughs> saw, saw he it. Some, it. He intuited <laughs> yeah, right. it. Yeah, he intuited it. And he knew. And now research is catching up with poor old Hippocrates <laughs> and Paracelsus right. and all these amazing, brilliant founders of modern medicine. And it's, it is, uh, so fiber is the food in, that influences our microbiome. Are, we are, what our microbiome eats in many ways. Mm. And the foods we eat influences this gut garden. And the fiber is an essential food that promotes bacterial diversity. And a lot of studies are looking at the more diverse of the beneficial bacteria our microbiome is within the large intestine is associated with longer, healthier life with lower disease. Um, so that's something that obviously everybody wants. And um, the, the more diverse our fiber intake is for the average person, the more diverse our microbiome is going to be. So it is, um, and then the, the bacteria consume this fiber and then they make something called short chain fatty acids like butyrate, which butyrate is biochemically related to beta hydroxybutyrate, which is the ketone that your liver is making in ketosis. So this is, the fiber is a great way to actually produce these beneficial things for our metabolism and for our health overall, our brain health and inflammation levels. So it is a, a, a low fiber diet long term is not advantageous for the average person. Yeah. Yeah. Protect the liver, feed the gut. That's what yes. Robert Lustig taught me. I love that. Um, I want to poke at fiber a little bit longer because you mentioned short chain fatty acids, mm -hmm. um, the champion of whom is, is or the most coronated or yeah. celebrated is butyrate. butyrate. For sure. And butyrate helps to maintain the integrity of those tight junctions in in your uh, in your gut wall, the yeah. epithelium, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, what happens when those tight junctures begin to degrade? Mm. Yes. So yeah, we need proper short chain fatty acids for the integrity of the gut lining, and when there's a loss of that, there's we can measure this on labs as well. For patients, we measure via stool tests and blood tests. You can measure immune activity against something called zonulin, which is the protein mm. that governs your gut lining permeability. So think of zonulin like the, you know, the first letter in the word Z, like a zipper. I think of it as like this sort of <laughs> it's a good mnemonic. <laughs> yeah, right in my mind, my weird <laughs> mind. Uh, so things are passing through the gut that should not be able to pass through the gut, namely undigested food proteins, i.e triggering food sensitivities, food reactivities, and lipopolysaccharides, which are bacterial toxins on gram-negative bacteria specifically. And that's also something you can quantify on labs. Now, some of these bacterial overgrowths because of environmental toxins and um, the foods that people are eating, lots of those Skittles, fiberless Skittles, that's feeding bacterial overgrowths, which will further degrade the integrity of the gut lining, which once things are breaching the gut lining and into the bloodstream, that can create a cascade of inflammation because then the immune system sees undigested food proteins and bacterial toxins in the bloodstream and it cre and 
your immune system wants to protect you. So it starts tagging those those foreign invaders in the bloodstream with antibodies, and then there's a seminal event that happens in some people called molecular mimicry. It's sort of the the case of mistaken identity when the immune system sees the things, attacks it, and then it cross reacts against the thyroid or the brain tissue, and that that's why mm. we're seeing so many people, sadly, with autoimmunity. It's because of the loss of integrity of this gut garden. Um, and that's a massive problem and something that the, the flip side of that is that's something that we have agency over. We can have a lot of governance over healing our bodies. Oftentimes it's talked about, we need to bolster our immune systems, which yeah. is said with the best intentions, yes. really. But in a way, we have actually over-agitated yeah. or hyperactive immune systems for the very reason that you just outlined, right. which is essentially our immune system is triggered yeah. uh, and it has a inflammatory response chronically. Right. Right? You're absolutely right. And it, you're right. It's said with the best of intentions. It's actually a di the way that it's... It, Better be the better wording would be a dysregulated immune system right. or a hypervigilant immune system. Most people actually will tell me, I never get sick. When I tell them, oh, there's inflammation in your immune system, there's leaky gut syndrome, it's impacting your immune system, they'll say, well, I never get sick. Well, yeah, it's because your immune system's hypervigilant, really. <laughs> You're able to yeah. probably, that's the benefit of it. But always being on hyperdrive isn't good. It's not sustainable for you. No, I, you know, we saw a lot of these cytokine storms, for example, in, um, which were uh, associated with COVID or the more serious um, contractions of COVID. Um, and for me, you know, that kind of set off alarm bells. I'm like, oh my God, well, people are just, their, their immune systems are hyper agitated. Um, can you connect the dots? I mean, you just kind of hinted at it actually, mm -hmm. between neurodegenerative disease and chronic inflammation that has its providence, mm -hmm. provenance uh, in intestinal permeability or, or leaky gut. Yeah, man. As I mentioned earlier, that that ninety five percent of serotonins in your gut, fifty percent of dopamine's made in your gut, stored in your gut. It's your second brain. It's the seat of your mind and your soul. Your gut. It's your gut and brain are formed from the same fetal tissue. So a lot of my job is really empowering people to realize that mental health is not separate from physical health. That mental mm. health is physical health. And our brain is a part of our body just as much as any other organ. And this sort of compartmentalization of mental health is sort of this abstract thing where they'll say, well, it's chemical imbalance. And and really what research is showing now that if, if at best there's no evidence for serotonin deficiency is what's how antidepressants help some people. But what is science pointing to? Well, it is this what researchers refer to as the cytokine model of cognitive function. Cytokines are, as you mentioned, pro-inflammatory cells. So it's research looking how inflammation is impacting how our brains work. So if there is a signaling problem, if there's a serotonin signaling problem, or if there is some dopamine issue, it is, it's looking like the mechanism is it's a response of an inflammatory issue. It's a response of the gut-brain axis, the connection between the gut and the brain, and how these things are working. So the microbiome, all these trillions of bacteria, influences not just hormones that, I, as I mentioned, which impacts your mood, certainly, like thyroid hormones, for example, but it also impacts actual neurotransmitter production and the balance of the neurotransmitter. So your gut modulates your mood. Your mm. second brain influences your first brain. So oftentimes, to understand somebody's 
neurological symptoms, whether it is anxiety, depression, brain fog, fatigue, or like you mentioned, neurodegenerative problems like dementia, brain fog, more progressed brain fog, word recall, name recall issues, Alzheimer's, they we oftentimes have to look in the gut to understand it through many different ways. It's 75% of the immune system. Inflammation is a product of the immune system. Number two, this is where a lot of neurotransmitters are made and stored. Number three, the vagus nerve and the connection, the physical connection between the gut and the brain. There's a lot, a lot of far-reaching implications. The point is we just have to look at the seat of where all these things originate, which for many people it's the gut. Yeah. And it is our proclivity and it's built in now to the systems and structures of our insurance policies and everything that around that, mm -hmm. that it is just so much easier to just to prescribe an SSRI um, that might that might help with some short-term stabilization yeah. um, around uh, mood disorder um, than to go upstream and to analyze some of the systems that you're talking about. I mean, you know, <clears throat> recently I was trying to actually um, uh, identify the particular strains of bacteria that that synthesize um, serotonin, for example. So streptococcus, I think, mm -hmm. and enterococcus is a kind of, um, this gets a little bit esoteric, but mm -hmm. there are particular strains of bacteria that when um, properly nourished mm -hmm. with prebiotic fiber yeah. and then in combination with B6 and tryptophan, which is a, like an essential amino acid that yeah. you actually have to get exogenously from, from diet, right? right. That that is then produced. That serotonin is produced then in yeah. your gut, and it's kind of just amazing. It is amazing, really. right? Um, yeah. And then you start to read about like, okay, you know, there's environmental toxins or pesticides like glyphosate that are blocking, like the shikimate pathway, for example, in plants that essentially inhibits the production of certain essential amino acids or aromatic amino acids like tryptophan, and you're like. You know, you start to create these hypotheses of yeah. like, oh my God, we're not getting the building blocks yeah. in our diet, and then is it any wonder that there's all these, you know, downstream symptoms related to these vague diseases that then yeah. we label, and then we try to like just throw a pharmaceutical at it, yeah, and um, it's just. Uh, I think it's just like speaks to the work that you are doing and a lot of the work that's happening within the functional medicine world, mm -hmm. which is looking at systems and individuality and mm -hmm. precision treatment and upstream root causes to be yeah. like, okay, wait a minute. Yeah. You know, is this a, is this a imbalance in your gut? You know, are you missing key nutrients mm -hmm. in your diet? Um, so yeah, I love it. And it's important. Doing. And there's so many people that they're doing everything their doctor's telling them to do, but they're not getting better. There's talking about millions and millions of people right now. So like I hope just through us having this conversation that they'll have a light bulb moment, maybe for themselves or someone that they love, to realize, oh wow, there's something more out there. It's more than just this pill. Let's start asking questions as to why I feel the way that they do. That is but my hands down my favorite part of my job is to give people answers to like, oh man, like I'm not crazy because they're yeah. so often made to feel like they're crazy. And <laughs> medical gaslighting is a massive issue, especially for women with autoimmunity. But totally. I call like how many women have I heard uh, tell me the story of like they'll be just postpartum 
And a doctor said, well, you're just a little depressed because, yeah. you know, you just had kids or yeah. and, and you're just imagining it. Yeah. Here's a antidepressant. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, oh, no. I know. It's, 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 you would think, I hear this, almost the same scenario over and over again on a weekly basis. It is insane that it happens. You know, if it's a bigger problem, like I think this, uh, this is just the healthcare version of a larger patriarchal problem, I think, yeah. that's happening. Yeah. So- you, so I'll just say this, kind of macronutrients get, there's a lot of generalization that happens about it. Mm -hmm. So I think we just addressed like carbs, for example, like fiber is carbs. Yeah. And there's a lot of very good reason to consume fiber. Yeah. But then on the other side, at least in the ketogenic world, it's like fats all the time. I mean, 80%, you mm -hmm. know, of your calories, you know, should come from fats yeah. um, or 70% or somewhere in this range. And, but not all fats are created equal either, right? Yeah. So can you dissect yeah. the different kinds of fats and Certainly. what are the fats that we should be focused on in our diet? Yeah. So it, it, and that's why context matters for all of these things. It's so easy for the, you know, pop blogosphere or the social media wars to go and like make blanket statements about all of these things and fasting it's good or bad or keto it's good or bad and vegan it's good or bad it's like how are they doing it and who's doing it <laughs> and that's the heart of functional medicine it's bioindividuality and these things all have relative like they're all can be tools within the toolbox it's a matter of context so um fats are needed for humans they're needed for human development it's just a matter of what type of fat we're talking about and then how much for your body right so there's the main types of fats poly polyunsaturated fat monounsaturated fat and saturated fats so most people i would say within the wellness world no matter where you reside would say that monounsaturated fats are healthy right that's pretty much you're going to Get most friends with that when <laughs> you say that in public <laughs> at the biohacking conference. Sure. Yeah. So uh, avocados, olives, you're going to make most friends there. It's mm. not very like, controversial. The polyunsaturated fats, it gets a little bit murky of like, well, what are we talking about? Is it a whole food based or not? Most people would agree that lots of industrial seed oils are not healthy. There are better versions of these things out there, certainly, and some people can have them in their diet and they're fine. But things like canola oil, vegetable oil, soybean oil, seed oils, uh, not the best in my opinion, but they're in some healthy-ish foods that can be fine. I just don't think they should be the majority of the fats you get. Um, and then, of course, there's the wild-caught fish and the long-chain um, omega fats. That's also a, a polyunsaturated fat, or we call them PUFAs, uh, mm -hmm. was the acronym. Um, most people would say those things are healthy too. Uh, even if they're vegan, they would say that those omega fats, they may not eat them, but they know that they would be healthy because it's a solid amount of evidence. Yeah. The saturated fat is where you get a little bit more controversial. And in my opinion, there's a lot of bioindividuality there. Some people should right. be having less of that. Some people can be having lots of it and be completely fine. So there's genetic variants that we look at. We look at things like the APOE gene variant, the APOA right. gene variant, that they may be slower shuttlers of saturated fats. But honestly, for the average person, if they're not having refined carbohydrates or having a diverse types of fats from whole foods, 
they're going to be great. Mm -hmm. And it's just a matter of how much fat is right for them. Because some people, like the people that want to go keto or low carb, uh, they will overdo it on the fats, right? And then yeah. their gallbladder and their liver and their gut's like not used to having that at all. And they can have digestive distress. So does that mean fats are bad? No, it's just they need to find the level that works for their body. And if they're having looser stools or uh, upset stomach or nausea, that's too much fat for them at this point in their journey. So just scale it back a bit. So good fats, just to summarize, the good fats would be wild caught fish, uh, nuts and seeds soaked. Uh, too many nuts and seeds for some people with digestive problems are a problem. Right. So look for other sources if you have digestive distress other than nuts and seeds. Um, but I do well on nuts, most nuts and seeds. Um, Grass-fed beef, uh, eggs, pasture-raised eggs, coconut cream, I mentioned olives, olive oil. Yeah, these are all good fats to consider. Got it. And then there's probably not much uh, disagreement about trans fats, right? Yes, I think. Yeah, you're gonna. You're right about that. So poly, partially hydrogenated oils. Uh, yeah, pretty much. It's probably the most uncontroversial thing you could say within the <laughs> wellness space. I think at this point, even though it's funny, I forget who told me on my patient team. They said their in-laws were still buying that. I can't believe it's not butter or something oh, like God. that. It's like, no, at that point. This what? is like a 20-year <laughs> argument I'm having with my dad. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, because he's still in the old LDL paradigm. Yeah. Of like, no LDL cholesterol at all costs. I got to watch my cholesterol. Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, you hinted at it, and we don't necessarily have to go down the whole road of the uh, substrate of cardiovascular disease, but... I think it's fair to say at this juncture that LDL has been over-villainized yeah. in that particular caper. Yeah. Um, would you agree with that? I would agree with that. It's oversimplified, and again, context matters there. So it was something we run in functional medicine is called a nuclear magnetic resonance or NMR test, which looks at what's known as the subfractionation of particles. So basically, you're looking at the quality of that LDL. Mm -hmm. Is it... High, is it higher dense, small dense LDL particles? Those are like little inflamed, oxidized, rusted BB bullets that can potentially cause problems. But you could have really low cholesterol, total cholesterol, but really high small dense LDL particles. Right. And that is not good. So, it, and you can have really high cholesterol within reason, like 250, 275, but have amazing high HDL. Good, good or good cholesterol, right. low, small, dense LDL particles because your body's producing these fluffy, buoyant, protective, cardioprotective LDL particles. That's uh, like cotton balls, not BB bullets, which are very protective. The LDL, the bad cholesterol, quote unquote, is in many ways behaving like good cholesterol. Mm -hmm. So it's the inflammation that can damage the particles of cholesterol. That's the problem. Got it. So it's really when LDL becomes oxidized yes. in the arterial walls, and then these macrophages come along, and it forms these foams, and then yeah, you're exactly. Into you know, you know yeah. what's up. But I know what's up. But I'm still in this <laughs> argument with my dad. Okay, who's your dad? Do, does he need me to call him up? I was like, listen, dad. If there's any podcast episode that you need to listen to, <laughs> it's this one. Okay. Well, sometimes yeah. it's the messenger, not the message. When it's your kid or your, you know, family member. Oh my so god. So I'll call him up if you need me to. Tell me about. It. Well, really, actually, I need you to call my daughter, but that's another <laughs> thing. You're gonna be busy. Um, so, yeah, I think that. Uh, yeah. Now, now I'm thinking about my dad. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. Poor guy. We'll call him uh, up. We'll do an intake right on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's just recovering from colon cancer. Oh, man. Yeah. 
So, um, and I have to go get my colonoscopy. Actually, this is a very good question, and you're here. Yeah. And this is like free advice. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so one of the things that I've been concerned about with getting a colonoscopy is um, the impact that it might have on my gut bacteria that mm. I've worked so hard to create this kind of beautiful, diverse yeah. garden there. Do you have any um, particular thoughts around... I'm 51, so yeah. it's time. Yeah. Uh, should I get one? Absolutely. I think that when it's appropriate to get these imaging studies and get a baseline and understand what's going on, it's I have never seen anybody wreck their gut health significantly with the colonoscopy. Yeah. So I think the benefits way, uh, way outweigh any drawbacks. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you have to there's procedures for prepping for these things, and that can impact your microbiome, certainly. But I would rather someone get a baseline, catch things early, be proactive with their health. And then this is one snapshot in time. They're doing so many, you know, in your case, doing so many other great things for your health that, no, it's negligible. In the scheme of life, it's it's negligible and it has way more good than bad. Cool. So it's not like taking a year's worth of broad spectrum antibiotics. Yes. No, 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 no. Yeah. I don't see any setbacks. And I, yeah. I see very sensitive patients that are reactive to just about any procedure you can think of. And no, it's pretty innocuous for people. Yeah. Do you follow a any sort of intermittent fasting protocol? Yes, sir. What I do. Your, but I do it here? intuitively. I do it intuitively. And that's honestly the subject of my most recent book, um, it came out last year, and it's a continuation of the conversation I had in Ketotarian. So it is a cyclical, flexible, intermittent fasting window. So I that yoga analogy of you know if somebody has a tight metabolism, right? They're metabolically inflexible. It's like tight hamstrings, and you've never done yoga, and you show up to the yoga class, and you think, oh, yoga's not for me; it's for somebody else. But it's not yoga; it's fault. It's your tight hamstrings' fault. So we want to stretch and expand and contract, vacillate our metabolism through intermittent fasting and clean carb cycling because mm-hmm. ketogenic is fasting mimicking. So through this, but I don't even think about it at this point. And I yeah. want people to have an intuitive nature, show up for yourself intuitively, eat mindfully. I teach these principles to my patients and in these books so they can start having agency over their health and it's no big deal. So I do. And it, it, the fasting window ebbs and flows from between a 12-hour fast, which is basically nothing. It's just not eating too late at night. And then all the way to an OMAD or honestly, multiple day water fasts I do. Mm -hmm. So um, everything and anything, but it's what does my body need now? Because these are tools within my toolbox and I don't always have to be doing them. And they're not meant to be done all the time. Yeah. I try to take my last bite about three hours before I go to sleep. That's perfect. Yeah. So I'm entering sleep in a more or less fasted state. And mm-hmm. then I'm getting to avail myself of the great benefit of sleeping yes. and being in a fasted state. Absolutely. So fasting can obviously get you into ketosis, but there are other positive benefits to fasting. Mm-hmm. Can you poke at those for a minute? Absolutely. So I mentioned earlier how Paracelsus, this you know father of toxicology in Switzerland in the late 1400s, I think early 1500s, he called fasting the physician within. And I think of all the research now showing at this what this is doing, mm-hmm. but it's mainly by keeping mTOR lower, that pro-accelerated pathway lower, and ketones coming up and insulin going down, you have this sort of trifecta, this confluence of biomarker pathway 
issues going on in a positive way that's supporting this inner physician. And the main mechanism here is autophagy, which yeah. I mentioned a bit earlier. But technically speaking, the deeper your fast, the longer your fast, the more autophagy it shows to be you know, happening. But you don't always need high, super high autophagy. Autophagy is always happening. These are ways to support and enhance it. Um, so it is a way to really lower inflammation levels. I have a lot of people that patient-wise that have high sensitivity, C-reactive protein levels are really high. They have autoimmunity. They have other high inflammatory markers in the gut, like um, lysozyme, calprotectin levels are high. They have inflammatory GI issues. Fasting is a great way to sort of this have this proverbial siesta in the body to allow it to repair rapidly. Yeah. So it's a great tool for sure, and it's completely free as well. It is free because. Uh no, no fancy biohacking equipment needed. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to market fasting, although I, I've seen people do it. Um, in fact, plenty of people are doing it. Um, yes. So it is essentially inhibiting mTOR, mammalian target of rapamycin, um, and lowering insulin-like growth factor, both of which seem to be concomitant with intermittent fasting. What is that relationship between essentially achieving those states and cancer, for example? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a lot, that's a great question. So a lot of cancers, not all cancers, really get their fuel from glucose and carbohydrates. So you are, in being in this inner physician state, you're really starving can cancer cells that at least the ones that drive their fuel from sugar. So it's a great way to support the immune system in exponential ways. And there's a lot of promising research looking at certain types of cancers, mainly brain cancers, different types of brain cancers, not all of them, at this point, and how fasting ketogenic diet can be beneficial. And I have no doubt if more studies were done and when more studies are done, you're going to find because of this confluence of benefits like the autophagy lowered insulin levels, um, allowing the gut microbiome to rest, et cetera, this is going to have a benefit for lots of different types of cancers. We just don't have all the data for it. But yeah, if somebody has any metabolic inflammatory chronic disease as a whole, this should be considered because it is a great way to allow the body time to repair. I'm sure you're familiar with David Sinclair. So he did a yes. lot around fasting and this particular cellular enzyme path pathway called the sirtuins. Yes. So I'm not sure you spent that much time mm -hmm. in that realm, but there does seem to be certain longevity pathways mm -hmm. that are triggered through mm -hmm. fasting as well. Is that right? Absolutely. So this is the his research and other people that are, that are looking at this, the, the, these Longevity pathways is a great way. And that's honestly a lot of people here at the biohacking conference will fast mainly for the longevity benefits, sort of right. the preventative supporting these beneficial anti-aging longevity pathways like sirtuins and stem cells as a whole. So, yeah, it's a great tool. And that's honestly at this point why I intermittent fast. It's just the, the research of looking at what Dr. Sinclair is doing um, and other things that can support these pathways. It's not just fasting, but there's a lot of different biohacks, if you will, or supplements or food uh, tools to be supporting these same pathways. Yeah. 
It also seems to trigger NRF2, right? You, yeah. wrote, wrote, you write about that as well. I um, do. So that's part of that anti-aging, when I say anti-aging, like longevity, anti-accelerated aging, I should mm -hmm. say. Um, yeah, NRF2 is a pro-antioxidant pathway. So a lot of the, the research around it being beneficial for inflammatory problems, which accelerates aging and oxidation, uh, has to do with the modulation, the benefits of the it, its positive impact on the NRF2 pathway and mm. pro, and decreasing the NF-kappa-B and the COX-2 pathway, these pro-inflammatory, the NLRP3 inflammasome pathway. So there's a lot of very interesting studies of how it's, I mean, the take-home beyond these wonky acronyms that we like to say <laughs> in the research community. It's just modulating your immune system in a positive way. Yeah. There's also a spiritual dimension yes. to it, or maybe you could categorize it as, as a philosophical dimension. Yeah. For me, it was a lot about not craving and really being able to sit with my body, especially in the early days when I wasn't used to intermittent fasting and observe the ghrelin <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> I love that. Observe the ghrelin. Observe the Very ghrelin. Buddhist of you. Very Buddhist. Um, <laughs> um, and, um, and really, uh, you know, just become very comfortable with that discomfort. Yeah. And, and almost um, started to think about like, well, if I don't crave food, all the time, can I also not crave my phone or the need that I feel to be liked by others <laughs> or just fill in the blank, you know, a gla the glass of wine at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think in, in a way it's our, almost like a, a training mechanism yeah. for not craving. And yeah. uh, of course the Buddha said a lot about craving. Yes, he did. A thing or two, a thing or two. I, I honestly, that's the main reason. Well, I should say for me personally, it was the main reason why I wrote intuitive fasting because I wanted to explore how to use fasting. Yes, as a medicine, but also as a meditation. Yes, there's a lot of the cool health science that we just talked about. It's physically very beneficial for our bodies when used appropriately, but it's also a great grounding practice. It's a great practice in non-resistance and acceptance and introspective, just checking in with yourself. And what's your relationship with food? What's your relationship with your body? And yeah, this is like you mentioned, spiritual. It's nothing new. I mean, humans would have done this. Well, you, if you, you look at some of the famous fasters, yeah. Jesus, Muhammad, the yeah. Buddha, yeah. <laughs> it goes on and on. Yeah, they've, they've done yeah. some things for the world. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and then they've had some incredible moments of revelation during yeah. fasting periods. Yes. So, uh, if you, yeah. <laughs> I, I, you could look, like you mentioned, in Christianity, Lent started out as a time of fasting. Yom Kippur, Tishbav, in Judaism, Ramadan, in Islam. I mean, pretty much any culture you look at, even if they didn't have a name for it, they just did it for spiritual purposes and medicinal purposes. Yeah. So, this is nothing new. Like, back to the full repackaging of things. I said this actually in the book. This is just a remembering. Right. Of what humans would have just called life. Now we need a book published by Penguin Random House to tell us <laughs> that we just, our ancestors would be like, yes, we, yeah. we, it's called our life. Why did you write that book? Yeah. Well, <laughs> at one point in human existence, there was a thing called scarcity. Right. Now exactly. for many of us, 
um, there is no such thing as scarcity. And I don't want to shortchange the reality that there is um, there is famine and there is uh, food insecurity. Yeah, food In deserts. fact, that's growing. Yes. Um, but, um, but, you know, we can avail ourselves of, well, of convenience store food almost any time. And, uh, and because of that, we, we, you know, we don't tap into the foundational intelligence of our bodies that have built these adaptive mechanisms around balance, around times of abundance and then times of scarcity. Mm -hmm. And those, those, um, those yin yangs are actually reflected almost everywhere you look in the body. So we talked about mTOR. There is AMPK, you know, right? right? right. There is the parasympathetic nervous system, and there is the sympathetic nervous system. There is glucagon, and yeah. there's insulin. There's carbon dioxide, and there's oxygen. I mean, almost every, there's uh, free radicals and yeah. uh, antioxidants. Almost yeah. everywhere you look, nature has found this yeah. balance. The duality of it This all. duality. Yeah. And I think the more that we can align ourselves in the flow of nature's river, we find, you know, that eubiosis, if you will. Yeah. And um, and for me, that's what actually biohacking is. Right. Yeah. <laughs> when like, you put, when yeah. you really look at the bigger picture, that's what it is. Yeah. I wonder if you have a viewpoint on this, um, which is slightly more philosophical. Again, we're here again at a biohacking conference, which so much of biohacking has been focused on longevity. So when people think of longevity, they think of lifespan. And uh, there's plenty of people raising their hand quite confidently saying they're going to be 180 years old. Oh, yeah. Um, many of whom are my friends. Um, <laughs> but uh, for me, I am not so concerned about lifespan. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I want to live a long, fruitful life if possible. But I'm way, way more concerned with health span. Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel about health span versus lifespan. Yeah. I, I think it's definitely important because when you look at people are living longer, right? And a lot of researchers, we are living longer as humans because of the amazing ben- benefits of modern science. But health span is not looking so good, Uh-oh. especially for us in the West. So yeah, people are living longer, but they're not living the best quality of lives. So even I remember years ago, I wrote an article. It was just it was an article about longevity and it was an article about what are different tools that people can do. And the title was how to live to a hundred or something like that. And the amount of comments I remember in the comment, I don't want to live to a hundred. I don't live. Yeah, all these people, because they see the average older person out there and like, I don't want that. But, and that's, that's the kind of the state of affairs right now. It's like, there's very few really healthy older people out there. There's exceptions to that. But the quality of life is diminished. So I agree with you. It is uh, health span should be the name of the game as far as what our focus should be. And that's where we have a long way to go. Mm. And because, yeah, we're extending lifespan, but we don't have modern medicine doesn't really have a conversation on health span. But hopefully yeah, we can I mean, change that. In the last that. 20 years of the average American's life, they're living with at least one chronic disease. Yeah. Generally, multi, multiple chronic diseases. Yeah. On some sort of polypharma cocktail, right? right? With with no research on what that cocktail is doing for them. Yeah, Yeah. of how one particular pharmaceutical is is impacting a a different one that they might be taking. And those clinical trials would be very difficult to run. Every variable right under the sun, yeah. So, um, and there's a tremendous amount of suffering associated with that. 
And the suffering is obviously for the individual who, you know, has diabetes or has Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or cardiovascular disease, et cetera. But it's also a tremendous amount of suffering for the family mm-hmm. of that person or friends or caretakers. Mm-hmm. And then it also, you know, takes a huge toll on society. And, uh, you know, this is obviously about human suffering, but the economic toll is staggering. Yeah. You know, we're talking about $4 trillion annual sick care expenditures. Yeah. yeah. And if you start to play that out five, 10 years, mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking like $10, $20 trillion. Yeah. And so in a way, it's not, I think, you know, longevity and biohacking conference and stuff, a lot of it gets conflated with like this kind of like, Silicon Valley male mm-hmm. chest pumping, yeah, yeah. chest pounding hero that's going to be amortal. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but for me, I think this world has a lot more utility. Yes, around actually health span, yeah, lengthening health span. So when you're 85 or 90, maybe you know you were sick for the last couple of weeks, but you're pretty much just kicking off. You yeah, know? yeah, exactly. Uh, and that's a life that. I'd be much, I'd much prefer to live. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, if people just did a fraction of what we've talked about in this episode, or what we're, people are learning about this biohacking conference, the, the amount I think about that, the societal economic impact of that, it is bankrupting the West, every Western country you can think of that that's dealing with this burden of disease. And I mean, I think the statistic is the, the United States. Spends on healthcare more than the next the, the next 10, 10 top spending countries combined. Right. Yet we have the most disease and the shortest health span and lifespan of all industrialized nations. So it'd be one thing if we were spending all these trillions of dollars, I think, and then saving lives. But I don't think you can look at those statistics and say we're really doing well as far as chronic disease care. And so much of it is food. So much of it's food, yeah. And people just started there. That yeah. would save trillions of dollars. And then beyond the economic, political side of it, it is going to save your quality of life. So on a micro and macro level, it is hugely important. But we have family members that don't want to listen to us. Dang it. <laughs> um, that is true. But we're doing, we're doing it. Yeah. I mean, so not everyone can avail themselves of Dr. Will Cole every day, um, day in and day out. Um, but how would you advise people to become um, agents or CEOs, if you, if you will, of their own healthcare. Are there ways that people can go out and order their own tests? Mm-hmm. And, and are there um, uh, you know, different kinds of tools that people then can use to analyze those results? Mm-hmm. I mean, how would you advise people if you know, yeah. someone um, was trying to get to the bottom, let's say, of some sort of vague autoimmunity, what, mm-hmm. what would you counsel? Yeah, it depends on where they're at in their journey. I think if they haven't done anything or if they're newer in their journey, I should say, and asking these questions and maybe newer symptoms or they're curious about this stuff, I, I think podcasts are a great resource to learn different things about your body. Obviously, conversations like this. I talk about this on my podcast as well. So people want to learn about things they could do in their life. I think books are another great resource because they're lower cost. Looking at an elimination diet or looking at fasting or looking at the ketotarian way of eating and different tools within your toolbox, that can be great to modulate the body in a positive way. 
when you start, as far as our telehealth clinic, we have sort of um, different ways that we can be there for you. As we have a group telehealth care that makes it more accessible, more affordable to more people, but still I'm involved with it. I have weekly group calls with them. They still have their own health coach. And we're providing this in a more democratic way for people. So there's that option. And then there is our, what we usually do, like our main clinic that we've done for 12 years is more of a concierge telehealth. Um, or I have one-on-one visits with them. We're running labs and a little bit more in depth. So there is different options within the telehealth that we're trying to give people choice, choice yeah. in their functional medicine experience. But then beyond us, there's a lot of direct-to-consumer labs out there that I really love. I think they're really smart. They're providing data for people that are maybe don't have access to a functional medicine doctor or, don't, or maybe aren't ready to lean into that either. Maybe they just want to do it on their own and learn about their body. So there's a few. I don't have any affiliation with them. One's called BASE. I mm. actually had her on the podcast, Lola Priego. Priego. And she... Um, you, it's, I think the lowest one is like 60 bucks, 70 bucks, something like that. But you can get – it won't be as comprehensive as we run, but it's still mm -hmm. a good baseline on what are my biomarkers. And then a lot of these direct-to-consumer labs will give you like a free – it's included in the price. You'll get like a visit or two with one – like a consultation with one of their specialists, which I think is great. Mm -hmm. And there's other ones out there too. There's um, Inside Tracker is really nice. Um, yeah, base inside tracker, and then and these know, are basically blood panels. You yeah, go to a lab, panels. and there's a phlebotomist who takes some vials exactly. of blood. Exactly, but you don't yeah. need a doctor, so you just order yeah. it online, get the results, and maybe some of them will include like a consultation with one of those specialists. But yeah, blood. I think they have urine and saliva too in in mm -hmm. those, and there's many other ones. Viome. I'm, I'm thinking like several ones. I I love that part of it because so even if people aren't ready for a functional medicine doctor, I like even. When they are ready for one, I can go over the, that lab data on a visit, and they've already kind of done the beginning work for me anyway, so I can kind of give them some insight. Right. Yeah, that's great. If you were to recommend or <clears throat> rewind, if you um, have a client that clearly has metabolic syndrome, what are the key tests yeah. that you are looking at or the key metrics that you're looking at? Sure. So- Number one would be a fasting glucose, which you technically, if you run a CGM, if you get your own CGM, and we, you know, like levels, um, but there's other ones out there too uh, that you can track your blood sugar throughout the day and kind of see which foods are working for you, which, what's your blood sugar balance throughout the day. Um, but bigger tests that I would run, which are honestly most of the ones I'm about to say, actually all of them pretty much, are going to be ones that your traditional doctor can run. Yeah. So many people, and this would be the second piece of advice, ask your doctor to run these. You know, say it in a nice way. Yeah. <laughs> ask nicely. But like if you have a decent relationship with your doctor, I don't think any of these tests are very excessive. You know, a blood sugar, fasting glucose, we want it under 90. That's the optimal zone. We want triglycerides or circulating fat to be under 100. We want HDL or good cholesterol to be above 60. Uh, we want, if you can get a little bit, you know, if you mm -hmm. don't get too selfish here, but I would, I would love to get a high sensitivity C-reactive protein to be under one. Mm -hmm. I want homocysteine, another inflammatory marker to be under seven. And then look, if this is a conventional test, it's just a matter if your doctor would run it or not, we, we can run it for you. But that NMR panel, I think it's very insightful to look at that small dense LDL particles. Mm -hmm. That's a good starting point. Some inflammation yeah. markers and some metabolic markers. 
pretty solid to get your baseline and then you can compare and contrast it over time and that's what we do for patients we get super geeky and i think that's one of our why our top patient base professional i think find fascinating for 12 years i've seen so many teachers nurses and engineers as patients because they all have a common love of (laughs) spreadsheets excel spreadsheets like get my grade looking good the teacher says or i want to look and get to the root cause the engineer says and i love it i love it and just fellow nerds just trying to optimize their health totally yeah i run these blood panels like once every two months more or less and then i can just like open my app and say hmm like, okay, I've made yeah. some progress there. Or like, look, that seems yeah. to be an area where I continue to need to improve and maybe I have to adjust a protocol or two, mm-hmm. et cetera. I mean, really, you know, I, this is you know potentially becoming a tired metaphor, but like you would never drive your car without a dashboard. True. You know, ever. Like you, you need to know how much gas you have in the tank or, or you know, tire pressure, oil pressure, uh, you know, any one of those metrics. Or if the yeah. engine light is on, you'd, Take it into the shop, right? Um, Well, essentially what we're just saying is that this kind of testing is your dashboard into your own vehicle. Wouldn't you want to know that? I know it. (laughs) I know. I know it. And so many people are divorced from their bodies, right? They they Mm. are depending on a system that they were born into for their health, right? Right. And I think it's lessening. Like it used to be like this white coat, you know, our grandparents, <laughs> yeah. great grandparents, they was like, if a doctor said it, it was gospel. Now I feel like more and more people are waking up. It's still a problem. Like they need to realize it's, they are their governance of their health, like not some system beyond them. Right. It's moved from white coat to blue sweater. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, if my doctor wore this, I wouldn't mind going to the doctor. The white coat, there's a there's literally white coat syndrome. Yes, right. It'll impact which, your numbers. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, uh, well, this I funny story with this, not important, but I for the first time ever went and got I shopped at LL Bean, and I'm like, I'm a proper, I'm a proper old man now, and I'm shopping at LL Bean. But hey. Yeah, well, you're a lovable old <laughs> grandfather. Like now, you just you got to grow your beard like exactly. Lao Tzu, yeah, like really long. <laughs> it's comfortable, but yeah, hey, yeah. I want to just let you um, talk just v- briefly and, and drop some popcorn about um, yeah. the book that's coming out next year in 2023. Yeah, um, and we'll do a proper conversation you. if you'll ever come back. Of course, on, um, be honored on that book. But I, I have it here, so I just want to get the title right. It's called Gut Feelings, right? Yeah. Healing the shame-fueled relationship between what you eat and how you feel. Mm-hmm. And you've coined a term that is shameflammation, which I thought is an interesting term. Yeah. Um, so can you uh, divulge just a little bit? Oh, of, for sure. Because uh, I'm sure it's more fresh in your mind. It is. It. I'm still like... I'm t- doing the final edits right now, but it's done. It's the, the book's done. But I am out of all the books as a writer. I, this is my favorite book to write because it's something that was on my heart for a while. And then you know how this works with like there's so many moving parts of publishing and things. Like the publisher has to get they have to understand why you're writing it and they have to get it and you have to get them all on board. And it, it, <laughs> it uh, was the timing thing, right? Intuitive Fasting came out. I knew that what I wanted my next book to be about, but it's about something that I touched upon earlier in the conversation, actually, that mental health is not separate from physical health. It's, it is yes. physical health. And really understanding the title Gut Feelings, this bi-directional relationship between mental health and physical health, how our thoughts and emotions 
stress, shame, trauma, and even intergenerational trauma, how mm. it impacts physical health, but then conversely, how do underlying gut problems that we've talked about, how does inflammation, how do hormonal imbalances, how do chronic infections like mold toxins, how does that impact our mood mm. and anxiety and depression and fatigue and brain fog? So that's what gut feelings is about. We explore gut, we explore feelings, talk a lot about both sides, like what are the tools within each toolbox that I've seen really work for people mm. to, again, democratize this information, hopefully, because it is a lot of these things are accessible, affordable, most of them free, and people just knew what to do. So um, I don't know if you know her, Nicole LaPera, Dr. Nicole LaPera. Yeah, yeah she, she wrote the foreword, right? She wrote the foreword of the yeah. book, The Holistic Psychologist. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, yeah, she's brilliant. So I was honored to have her part of this book and just realizing what I do in functional medicine. I'm sort of like a quarterback in many ways with these different spaces of health that it should not be either or. It can be both and integrate all of these tools. Yeah, I can't wait to read this Thank book. Um, my friend uh, Gabor Mate is coming to oh stay with me for the next four days. That's brilliant. Um, he's, a, he's a legend. I know. And so he's t coming at it more from the psychosocial point of view, mm -hmm. but he is a physician. So yeah. there's a bio component there. Uh, and then I have uh, my friend Kara Fitzgerald, who is a doctor who's talking about more specifically about how genes are methylated in response to particular kind of trauma-inducing events. Yeah. And then Sarah Gottfried's embarking on this project around she trauma is. right now. Yes. And it, I just think like this is this is right in the bullseye yeah. right now. Yeah. Um, because we're seeing these cresting rates of mm -hmm. depression and addiction and mental illness. And these things are not separated mm -hmm. from our gut, from our other physiological systems, from what we're eating. And um, and there's so much to figure out. Yeah, I know. It's so much. I, it's funny that Dr. Gottfried, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, her and I were talking when our last books were out and we both said like we're talking about writing this book and we're both <laughs> in the same wavelength i think as clinicians especially people that see patients you see the need for it it's sort of we're part of the collective i think consciousness of what people need to hear and it's interesting that you know books tend to come out with similar timing because it's needed yeah i mean i think it's a great thing because it provides it sails all ships, right? Exactly. And it provides a lot of different kinds yes. of touch points for people. I mean, Sarah's probably going to focus a little bit more on like female hormones or something. Yeah. You know, I, that's her field yeah. of expertise. And I think there's just a lot of, there's so many prolific voices, yeah. um, you know, thinking and talking about these, including yours. And I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm so grateful that you took your time because I know how busy you are keynoting here and talking to a million people. Uh, and it's just wonderful to have a three-dimensional connection here. And I hope it's to be continued. Oh, of course. Um, because uh, I just think what you're doing is fantastic. Likewise. And, um, I'm a huge fan of you and have been for years and honored to be a part of this conversation. Okay, we'll do it again. Yes, thank you. All right, man. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Will Cole. Be sure to keep abreast of all of Will's projects at drwillcole.com. And if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you are a regular listener, then you have a sense 
for how much effort we put into the show's creation, and we really do our damnedest to keep ads to a minimum. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way to do this is subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top doctors, authors, and thought leaders. And you can check it out for free for 14 days at onecommune.com slash trial. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly with suggestions and, hmm, yeah, criticism of the constructive variety at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly and not leastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible week over week, including Jacob Laub, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Ruby Foster, Emma Frett, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you. <laughs>